you know, I describe humans as, as bipedal problem solvers. Uh, and there is definitely a deep connection between, between walking and, and creativity. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. We all walk. But some of us walk a lot more than others. My guest today, John O'Lanine, is a very serious walker. He's also a thinker, writer and curator, author of three books, River Trilogy, Into the Heart of the Himalayas, and most recently, Perfect Motion, How Walking Makes Us Wiser. He's somebody who's lived all around the world, but is currently living in what I consider to be the greatest city in Australia, Canberra. Jono, thanks so much for coming in to speak to the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate that. And I would agree with you in that I think that Canberra is one of the greatest cities in the world, actually. So you, uh, you grew up in Belfast. Uh, tell me what it was like to, uh, to, to grow up in the time of the troubles uh, in a pretty troubled town. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting... Uh, reflection for me because I grew up in quite a, a tight family, a very close-knit family, an extended family in a typical Irish sense where there was lots of cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. Um, so my, my memories of Belfast are actually extremely warm, especially in the home environment. But I also remember that Belfast outside of the home environment was precarious, I would say, because um, there was always there was always a tension about the place. You know, when you were walking down the street, uh, especially downtown, there was British Army uh, all around on patrol, and everybody, all the Belfast folk would be going about their day, and you could see that the young British Army guys were extremely tense. They knew that this, for them, was a life and death situation. These walks that they took every day could be their last. And there was, um, you know, there was an edge about the way that they moved. And that affected, uh, that affected me as a child and it affected people around them. So Belfast is a, is, is a city of hot and cold for me. Hot in that it was, it was a great childhood, actually, but cold in that the memory of that time and the legacy of that time still lingers. Were your family Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Did you have any Catholic friends? No, no. I went to a public school, um, Gilnahurt Primary, and there were, there were no Catholics as far as I know in that school. That's a really interesting question. I don't... No one, no one, none of my friends at the school talked about religion, of course. We all assumed that we were Protestants. But, Andrew, you probably remember there's a section in the book where I talk about how right next door to Gilnerhurt Primary School, the government 
built, well, the government school system built a Catholic primary school and there was tension along that barbed wire fence every lunchtime. Uh, and interestingly, I should also say that my, my grandfather, uh, John, and my gran were, were from County Cork. And my grandfather uh, was actually a Catholic. And uh, my, my grandfather and my grand got together when they were 18 years old. And he was a Catholic, she was a Protestant. So this was, this was at the time of the Civil War, actually. Mm. Um, and it was a very, very difficult situation for them. They actually had death threats. So, and um, they eloped, they left, and they actually got, he converted to Protestantism to marry my gran, and then uh, because he converted to, to Protestantism in, in the early 1920s, he moved north. He moved north to the town of Downpatrick, which is the, the uh, burial place of St. Patrick, and uh, lived the rest of his life in Northern Ireland as a Protestant. And I didn't, I didn't realize that until I was well into my 20s. And it was interesting for me because my dad always talked about his cousins in the South, in the Republic. Um, and I never really thought about it. And then I realized, wow, all of my cousins and second cousins are Catholic. And yet mm. I grew up as a Protestant. And then when you were 10, your family moved to Canada. What prompted the move? Well, that would be the Troubles. <laughs> so Belfast in the 1970s was not a place of opportunity, uh, unfortunately. Um, and uh, my, my dad was uh, an officer on ships. He was a captain on ships. But he also had a, had a technical background. So, and um, my dad and... Okay, this is actually an interesting story because my mom and my dad met at a, uh, at, a, at a promotional night for immigration to Canada. Uh, again, an incredible story. And it took them a decade to make the decision. It took them a decade to make the decision. And of, of course, you know, as we know, that is a, it's an incredibly difficult decision to make, Andrew, to leave all your friends and your family and go to somewhere completely new. And of course... Back then, uh, especially in the 60s when they first met, uh, you know, there was, there, there was no coming back. You know, there was the, trying to get back to Ireland from wherever it was, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, was a, was a huge commitment. So, uh, you know, the, the troubles really forced their hand in a way. And um, they, they actually, I remember actually my, my mom and my dad calling my brothers and my sister uh, into a family meeting in their bedroom and they were sitting on the bed and we were all sitting on their big bed and my dad laid out these promotional pamphlets for uh, live in Australia, move to South Africa, uh, welcome to New Zealand, here we go Canada. And he said, he said, well kids, we're moving and your mom and I have done some research and We've decided on, and it was kind of like, you know, a <laughs> game show or something, and we've decided on Canada. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> we were moving to Canada, and it was a big adventure. It was really, it was really exciting. It was a lot of, it, it was a lot of fun. It was, of course, it was incredibly stressful for my mom and dad. You know, I've, I've moved to, to a country 
you know, later on in life. And I know how stressful that can be. But, you know, going to a new place uh, with very little security. My, my dad was able to secure a job in Canada before, uh, before we arrived there. But there was no house. There was no furniture. There was no real knowledge about the school system or the health system. But we all arrived in Canada, and I remember the first day we were we moved to Vancouver, and we were driving north uh, from where we were living towards the city. And north of Vancouver is a beautiful mountain range, the Coast Mountains, and the sun was setting behind those mountains that day. And I remember thinking, "Wow, this is a really beautiful place." <laughs> so I consider myself very blessed to have had that childhood in in Canada. Well, almost as much as Canberra, Vancouver is a great uh, outdoors city. Uh, do you think it was that physical environment that uh, excited you to the, the love of the outdoors and the love of walking? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about it, Andrew. And actually, we moved to Vancouver initially, but then my dad got a job as a captain on one of the ferries that moved between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. Uh, the BC Ferry Corporation, which is actually, I've I've heard that it's actually they have more ships than the entire Canadian Navy. So it's quite a large, it's quite a large body of ships. So my dad was a captain on one of those ships, and we moved to Vancouver Island to a small town there called Comox, which uh, really is uh, an incredible place. It's a, probably only uh, five thousand people in this town, but from my house. Um, which was just 100 metres from, from the beach, not in the Australian sense. This was a stony grey beach that you would never go in the water there because it was always so cold. But from our house, you could see the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and behind it on the other side, because uh, we lived on a peninsula, you could see a glacier. Mm. And the glacier came down almost to the water. So it was an incredibly dramatic landscape. And... I'm a great believer in how landscape can shape people. And um, yeah, I had, a, I had a great love of the outdoors from, from well, probably even before I, I, I went to Canada. But definitely Vancouver Island shaped me as a, a lover of the outdoors. Uh, what sort of sports did you do growing up? Oh, you know, I played soccer. I uh, played a bit of rugby. But uh, my, my main, my real love and passion was cross-country ski racing uh, and that that was a bit strange because uh, you know there's not a lot of skiing in Ireland as you know um, and when we went to Canada well when we moved to Vancouver Island my mom and dad again gathered us together in a family meeting and uh, my dad said okay this year we're all going to try skiing and then he explained, <laughs> then he explained, there's two types of skiing. There's the skiing where you go down the hill, or there's the skiing where you go up and down the trails. And my brothers and my sister decided they were going to go downhill skiing, alpine skiing. And I decided, being the black sheep of the family, that I wanted to try this cross-country skiing. Because, well, I think partly because I loved, I loved bushwalking, I loved hiking so much. And you became a pretty serious cross-country skier. I did. I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I became. Uh, I became. Yeah. I became quite good at it. Uh, you you know, don't I have to be modest. <laughs> yeah, I was good. 
Uh, so yeah, I raced in the World Championships and in the World Championships in 1987, I was in the top 40 in the world. So that was, I was quite happy with that because in Europe, uh, cross-country skiing is, is a big, big sport, you know, similar to, similar to bike racing. So getting in the top 40 in the world is a, is quite a good achievement. Um, and I consider myself again, very fortunate to have been able to spend the time fully immersed, completely immersed in in a sport like that. I learned I learned a lot from cross country skiing and from the training around cross country skiing. Uh, what made you successful at cross country skiing? Uh, the ability to suffer. <laughs> I think you know, Andrew, from uh, from all your running, that uh, the ability to suffer is uh, that's the biggest hurdle. Uh, and then, then there's the psychology, uh, and uh, I think that's probably that's probably where I I lacked uh, compared to the top ten in the world, because um, uh, uh, as you know that when you get to a certain level in any endurance sport. Uh, People are generally around the same physiological capability, uh, and then you know, then you get to that next level of the pyramid. It's about how much pain can you suffer, how much can you push through, and then at the very peak of the pyramid, there's that little, there's that psychological edge, which is really about confidence. And in cross-country skiing, especially, you see that edge evolving out of countries that have a long tradition in cross-country ski racing. They have a lot of history there. So that's why you see again and again Russians, Swedes, uh, Norwegians, uh, Finns, uh, and then occasionally, you know, you'll see uh, the French or the Germans or the Swiss in there. Um, and it's, it's only rarely where you see uh, ski racers from other countries such as Canada or the US or, or Italy um, who have large skiing populations mm. and have quite good systems to get people to the top of the sport. But very few of them are actually able to crack the, the World Cup code. Yeah. So then one of the sort of seminal events in your life is the, the death of your brother. Um, tell us about how that happened and, and the effect that it had on you. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the, the man that I am today can be traced back to that, that really sad night, uh, January 18th, 1988, my brother, my younger brother, Gareth, who was 18 years old, and it was actually his birthday the next day, was out training with his uh, university rowing team, the University of Victoria rowing team in British Columbia. And it's on a, a place called Elk Lake. And Elk Lake is actually the national rowing center in Canada because it's one of the very few lakes in Canada that doesn't freeze in the wintertime. So they were out training. It was a very cold January night. Uh, the temperature was oh, five degrees. The water temperature would have been around two. And uh, they went out on the lake uh, just as the, you know, the sun was starting to set because it's wintertime in Canada, so uh, the sun goes down early. And while they were out on the lake, and I should say this is not a big lake. It's probably about 
a kilometer and a half long and less than a kilometer wide. And when they went out on the lake, a huge storm blew up out of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, really out of the blue. There, there hadn't been a forecast for this, uh, this squall that came in, but it was, it was a serious storm and uh, within, within 15, 20 minutes there were six-foot waves on this lake. There were two training shells out on the lake that evening and one coach boat. And uh, the first boat um, capsized and the coach boat went and picked up the, the, nine, uh, the nine boys in that boat, so the eight rowers and the, and the cocks, and then went to the closest shoreline to drop them off. Unfortunately, when that coach boat was going to the shore, it was swamped by the waves and everybody went into the water. They were able to wade out of the water, but that meant that there, was, there wasn't a coach boat on the water. My brother's, my brother's boat was still out there. It had flipped. Uh, the shell, which was a fiberglass shell, had snapped in two. And so the, the nine boys were holding on to this, this shell and getting colder and colder. And in that situation, the, the problem is, is hypothermia. It's uh, losing your, your body heat. So to try and stay conscious, the boys were calling out their seat numbers around and around. And uh, eventually, my brother didn't call his name anymore. Such a horrible, random loss. Yeah, absolutely random. Um, and there was an inquest into it afterwards and some recommendations were made around that. Um, but, you know, the cost is, you know, the cost is to the family. And, yes. uh, yeah, you must think a lot about who would have become and uh, mm. the kind of, kind of man that he would be now and presumably the family he would have had and, and all of that sort of... Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's with me every day, every yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, uh, when I lost a school friend reading some books about grief and, and one of the points one of them made is, is we're often reluctant to talk to people who've lost a loved one because we're worried we'll bring it up again. And the point this book was making was... Uh, that's a crazy thought. People who've lost uh, a, a brother or a, a parent or a child are always thinking about that person and, and more likely they'll welcome the chance to speak about them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm more than happy to talk about, <laughs> about Gareth now. Uh, but, you know, Andrew, as you know from, from reading the book, I mean, the, there was a couple of years there where I really just wanted to ignore it. I wanted to suppress it. I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable talking about it. Mm. Um, and, you know, that was, it's a time of, of great confusion, a time of real, uh, a huge amount of difficulty trying to figure out at that point then who I was and What's the purpose of all this? Why are we here? So part of your 
dealing with Gareth's death seems to have been this extraordinary 2,700-kilometre trek in the Himalayas. What led you to that? <laughs> well, uh, I was a young guy, um, you know, with a lot of energy, uh, in great shape, and uh, at the same time, as I said, I was, I was confused, I was lost, uh, and, you know, I had a couple of bad years there, and the th I would say that the, the, there was a vision that really that brought me out of that downward spiral. And that was a vision from childhood of myself and Peter and Gareth and Katrina going with my mum down to the local library in Belfast. And we would go there every weekend and we would choose our books for the week. Uh, you know, I would usually choose a kid's mystery like the Hardy Boys or Enid Blyton or something like that. And then I, I always gravitated towards the mountaineering section books. Those books were very popular in Britain in the 1970s. And then I'd open up those books and it'd be those beautiful pictures in the, in the middle of those, those spreads with, with men and women in bright colored jackets in the Himalayas, in this incredibly steep environment, snow all around, amazing blue skies. And I remember thinking as a child, wow, that is so cool. It was so different than what Belfast was, which was gray and oppressive and always raining. And there was the Himalayas, which had that sky that just went on and on and a sea of mountains. And I thought, when I was a kid, oh, I wanted to go there. And that, that vision came to me again when, um, when I hit the bottom of that spiral. I was like, okay, I want to go and see what the Himalayas are like. So I saved some money up, and I got a cheap flight to India, and I took a bus. I took a bus up through the Himalayas to the north side of the range to a town called Leh, which is the capital of Ladakh. And I remember getting there and thinking, wow, look at that sky. And you could, you could feel the, the lightness in the air with the altitude. And, and Andrew, I will say that the only place I have ever been in the world that has a light similar to the north side of the Himalayas is Canberra. Canberra has a really, really special light. And I remember arriving in Ladakh in that light and thinking, oh, wow, this is special. And I went there for one season of trekking, and I ended up spending eight years there. And the culmination of that time was the trek that you're talking about, 2,700 kilometers through the Himalayas alone. And why did I do that? You know, that's, that's a question that, it's actually a question that I asked myself for about 12 years after I did it. Because initially, when I, I started that walk, when I started the planning around that walk, I thought, I was thinking back to those men and women in those books from my childhood, you know, those, those Himalayan climbers and trekkers, and I thought, yeah. I want to be the first person to walk from Pakistan to Nepal alone through the Western Himalayas. And I did all this planning around, and of course I was a young guy. I thought that women would like me because I'd done something really cool like that. Of course, I didn't realize at the time that women really aren't that interested in, in men <laughs> who, are, who are that, that selfish when you get down to it. 
but uh, that was the plan, and that was the, really the, the superficial motivation around it. But what was so interesting is as that walk developed day after day, week after week, month after month, you know, the walking, the walking released something in me. It freed me up in some way. And, you know, there's the, I mean, everybody who's listening to this has been on a good walk and has felt the, the lightness and, you know, the balance that can come with that and the, the, the heightening of your energy as you, you move into a good walk. And I was doing that every day for 10 hours a day you know, six days a week, just walking and walking, 30 to 40 kilometers a day at a high altitude with a 25-kilogram pack. And, you know, like when I was cross-country ski racing, I was good at it, you know. I was empowered. And I knew that this was, you know, this is, this is what I'm made to do. You know, I'm made to walk. And the truth is, everybody is made to walk. So... The motivation at the start and the realization at the finish, you know, they didn't exactly meet up. Um, but when I finished that walk, that, you know, almost five months of really what was walking meditation, something definitely had changed in me. I felt, I felt stronger emotionally and psychologically as well as physically. And, but I... You know, I, I knew at that point that there was something more going on there. And, if, and, and you know, I spent 12 years writing uh, my last book, Into the Heart of the Himalayas. Um, and it was in the process of writing that book that it really, you know, it struck me. It struck me that this was, this was, of course... Actually, so there, there's a story about that that I should relate, Andrew, because... Nice. It, yeah, because it... it it, it, you know, it's one of those magical things. I was, uh, I did many, many drafts of that book. You know, I started out looking, trying to relate the story as kind of an adventure story in some way. But that really was, that didn't feel right. And it didn't read right. And so I kind of tossed that away. And I thought, okay, I kept going back to the to the fact that magic had happened every day on that walk. I'd had incredible interactions with people, incredible interactions with the landscape, incredible interactions with, with the religions along mm. the way, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And so what, what had really brought about that magic? And, and so I researched and wrote another version of that book looking at its, its uh, relationship, my relationship in the Himalayas to the flora and the fauna and the landscape. And, you know, that, so that felt a bit, bit closer to what I was feeling, but it still wasn't quite right. So I went back again and did another draft of this book looking at, at the, the walk in relation to sacred landscapes, so combining the landscape and the flora and the fauna with culture and religion. And again, that was getting closer to what I felt, but, you know, by now I've been working on this thing for a decade, you know, and I was thinking, this is, this is, what is going on here? And I was in Kathmandu um, and uh, working there, 
and a friend of mine who was an editor and and a carpet entrepreneur, <laughs> she said, "Oh, I want to read your I want to read your draft." And, and I said, oh, "Okay, that that'd be great." So she read the draft, and we got together a few weeks later for a, for dinner, and you know she sat down and she just plumped the manuscript in front of me as you did in those days because you know that's before when everybody had computers and laptops, and uh, and then she she pulled off this 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 kind of about 10 pages of notes that she'd taken. And this was on the first chapter. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a long conversation. But she was great. She went through it and through it. And what it boiled down to, what her critique boiled down to was the fact that she thought that something else was going on there. You know, there was an incredible amount of information about the mountains and about the, and about the ecosystems there. But, you know, I wasn't getting to the heart of the matter. And I just kind of laughed it off and said, oh, I, in the back of my mind, I was saying, well, you really don't know what you're talking about because this is my book and it was my trek. And, you know, all those years of studying Buddhism hadn't taught me anything, of course. I wasn't very open to the criticism. And then uh, a couple of days later after that meeting, I was sitting out. I'd been working on, I'd been working on uh, a piece of the book Book where I reached the source of the Ganges, a place called a place called Gaumuk, which means cow's mouth in Sanskrit. And so the, the source of the most sacred river in Hinduism emanates from the mouth of the most sacred animal in the religion. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And the mouth, the source of the Ganges is actually the base of a glacier, the Gaumuk glacier. And I'd arrived at that, at that glacier just as the sun was going down. I remember I could see the glacier off in the distance. I was probably about 5K away, and the sun was starting to go down. And I was so much wanted to be at the source of the Ganges as the sun went down that I just threw my pack off, and I started running up this glacial moraine boulder to boulder like a, like a deer. And... Oh, I arrived. I arrived there just as the sun was going down, and the the Ganges actually emanates from from an ice cave at the base of this glacier. It has that turquoisey blue shade to it that's just illuminated by almost an internal light, and the river comes out of it as a very small, a very small creek, beautiful and, and it's very very playful. And I sat down, I was exhausted, and I sat down on this gray sand beach just at the source of the river, and I sat there in, in a lotus position, and I just wanted to be in this place because it just felt so magical. And I remember sitting down there, and after probably less than a minute, I could feel this, this heat rising up my spine, and I just started crying. And I'd, I'd always attributed that, uh, that emotion, that welling up of emotion, to the fact that I was at the source of one of the greatest features of Hinduism, mm. uh, at the source, you know, one of the great fe religious features, landscape features in the world. And then years later, when I was in that hotel room in Kathmandu, after I was meditating, after I'd been going through that section, rereading and re-editing that section again, and I was sitting there, and I had this incredible sense of deja vu. You know, I had been there before. I'd been there, and it was something about the light and something about the stillness being at 3,000 meters in the Himalayas, and there wasn't a breath of wind, and about the, that cool, cool, dry air. And in a, in a snap, I realized that the last time I'd been in that situation was when I had seen my brother's body dead 
in the morgue in Canada. You know, that same light, fluorescent light, that same cool stillness. And in a flash, I realized that what that walk, that 2,700-kilometer walk, and eight years in the Himalayas had been about, and the 12 years of writing this book was really about coming to terms with the death of my brother. And it's, it's the universal story that everybody has to face in this life. It's the understanding of great loss. And with that knowledge, then I was able to go back to the book again and rewrote the whole thing again. And finally, it started, it started to come together. And it was incredible, Andrew, how so many of those situations that I called magic at the time actually had direct relationships to experiences that I'd had with Gareth. Do you know, have you spoken to other people who've used walking as a way of dealing with grief? Oh, a lot of people. Um, and especially, you know, just since the book came out a, a few, the new book came out a few weeks ago, uh, you know, people have, have approached me and said, oh, yeah, you know, um, you know, I've been suffering from grief or, uh, you know, I suffer from depression in some ways. And, and one way that, uh, you know, that I, that I use to, to control that or to come to terms with that is, is through walking. So there's, there's definitely, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of medical evidence now, Andrew, about that, about the ability of walking to, to, to temper those, those, those emotions. You, uh, write in your most recent book about a, a number of uh, incidents in your time working with Medicines Sans Frontières. Uh, one of my favourites is your discussion of uh, time in Sierra Leone uh, negotiating with a man improbably known as Tejan Superman. <laughs> Tell us that story. Yeah, well, I had the great privilege of working with MSF for, for almost five years in the early 2000s. And... Um, my, my first mission, what they call an MSF mission, was to Sierra Leone at, the, at the, the height of the Civil War there. And the Civil War had been raging, well, in, in Sierra Leone and Liberia uh, for about a decade at that point. And our job in MSF was to, was to uh, set up and run clinics in areas where the population had you know, had no, had no access to government health care anymore. So generally rebel-held areas. Now, to, to do that job, um, you have to negotiate with a lot of interesting characters, uh, government officials, uh, army officials, and rebel officials also, until you get some kind of at least a verbal guarantee from a rebel commander that you can come to the area, provide medical care and, you know, not, not get taken hostage or shot, then you're not going to go there. So, yeah, there's just this incredible, when I look back on it, it's, it's absolutely incredible that, you know, I spent many, many hours talking to, to young men in Sierra Leone who were, you know, they were mass murderers and rapists. And, we had to negotiate with these people because they actually held the rest of the population uh, hostage in some way. So the situation that evolved in the story in the book 
Andrew, is that we, uh, we were given permission by one of the rebel commanders who had control of the area closer to where our base was in a town called Port Loco. And they, he gave us permission to set up a satellite clinic. Well, it was actually just a temporary clinic for that mm. afternoon uh, and provide, provide health care for the local population there. Now, communication between different levels of a rebel organization are not always great. I can tell you that from personal experience now. Uh, they, they don't spend a lot of time writing memos back and forth, believe me. So we drove to uh, the bridge that went over the little Scarces River, which is a big river in Sierra Leone. And this bridge went over to the village where we were going to, uh, we to hold that, uh, that clinic that day. And I remember it was, it was almost like a dream, that walk that we made from, from the far side of the river to the area where we were supposed to hold this clinic because there was a series of interactions we had along the way. First of all, with the young rebel who, whose job was to guard the bridge. Uh, and then the... Carrying an AK-47. Carrying an AK-47. And, you know, he'd obviously had a hard night on the palm wine the night before because he wasn't particularly stable when we were talking with him. Um, one of, and one of, the, uh, one of the important attributes that you need working for an organization like MSF is that you need to be able to think on your feet very quickly and analyze people very quickly. And I think that's something that my experience living and working around the world has, has helped me out with. Uh, so quickly we realized that there was something that that young lad wanted out of us, and that was, um, that was respect. You know, respect mm. that we realized that he had a job to do there and his job was to guard the bridge and the bridge was access into the village that his his unit was controlling and so he was he was a key part of that that war machine in a way. And as soon as we showed him respect and as soon as uh, we offered him something which was health care that he thought that they needed, then he was willing to let us through. The next interaction was actually with uh, a group of peacekeepers from Nigeria. And uh, at that time, Ekomog, which was the uh, economic community of West Africa, had supplied peacekeepers, mainly Nigerians, to Sierra Leone to try and stabilize the situation. And they were, they were doing a pretty good job. Now, we unfortunately had not been informed that there was a unit of Nigerian peacekeepers in this village. And so we showed up and out of the blue, uh, we were we were called into this compound. Well, we were herded into this compound by uh, a bunch of guys who, you know, kind of looked like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, <laughs> herded into this this compound and then interrogated by the local the local commander, the captain, the Nigerian army captain. And and another interesting situation evolved where again, you know, he wanted something from us, which again was respect, um, but he also want, <laughs> he also wanted to make sure that his career wouldn't be affected by these very strange and carefree uh, Western humanitarians. 
And so he actually made us sign a document, almost a contract, guaranteeing that if we continued on into the rebel-held area, to the rebel base, that uh, if we were killed, it was not his responsibility. <laughs> so, so it was a nice piece of, of career, uh, career guaranteeing for him. And so we left Like there. a reverse life insurance policy. Reverse, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Uh, and, 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 but of course, I could understand where he came Absolutely. from. You know, he was yeah. a young guy on his first posting. It was a chance for him to get ahead. And if these dumb Westerners got killed on his watch, you know, he would have been exiled to the farthest corners of Nigeria to, to, to deal with the local population. And that's nowhere to go in your mm. career with the Nigerian army. And then we had the interaction with the rebel commander, Tejan Superman, who was, who reminded me of, uh, you know, it was, he was almost like a Colonel Kurtz figure in a way, because he'd obviously, he'd obviously been involved in some very, very difficult situations and had undertaken, um, He'd done things that I think he would regret the rest of his life. And uh, again, you know, he really, he really didn't have much time for us, and he didn't think that there was anything that we could offer them. What was interesting was that Tejan Superman's girlfriend was there. Uh, in Sierra Leone, they were known as bushwives. So when, when the rebels went to a village, they would kidnap uh, young women and girls and take them along. And some of them would be indoctrinated and become become child soldiers. Some of them were used, unfortunately, for, for sexual purposes. But this young girl had an interesting position in that she seemed to be incredibly strong. And when, when Tejan Superman refused our offer of providing health care for the villagers who he was supposedly responsible for, when he refused that, the girl, the girl took him on and got incredibly, incredibly upset with him and forced him to change his mind. Uh, and it was, it was absolutely shocking because I remember thinking at the time, you know, she, she was in Tejan Superman's face. She was shouting at him. She was pushing him. And I thought, you know, this, this is a man who's, who's killed people, who's tortured people, who's maimed people. You know, this could go so completely wrong, and he could shoot her right there and then. But he didn't. He took her advice, and he let us continue on and set up this, this clinic for the, for the village people. And then the incredible thing is that we arrived at the site where we were setting up the clinic, and there was nobody there. It was empty. And uh, one old man came from the village. His name was Solomon, and he talked to my, to my fixer. And, he, and we said, well, is, is anybody coming? I mean, have, is, has all of this been in vain? And he said, no, 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 wait. And within 15 minutes, there was probably 50 people lined up. They came out of the woods like ghosts, you know, ghosts in search of some type of... They were actually in search of hope because... You know, the health care for them represented, yeah, not just the ability to, uh, to get well, but the ability that there was, there was a structure there. There was some type of, of 
governmental assistance, some type of higher power assistance that was still thinking of them, that could still provide them with the service that reintegrated them back into, into a larger community that they had. It was, it was an incredible day and I'm, you know, still, I'm still in awe of the people in Sierra Leone who went through that situation and they survived and so many of them, so many of them thrived through what was an incredibly difficult time. And the way in which you tell that story, walking feels so integral to it. It's hard to imagine you could have had that respectful encounter on the bridge if you'd shown up in an armoured SUV. Uh, to be there on foot is to encounter others at, at their level. Oh, yeah, no, that's a great point, Andrew. Um, and th that is the truth of it. And, you know, it's part of the story of my life, you know, when... One of the great things about being working in Sierra Leone with MSF is that, yeah, we encountered people on the ground one-on-one. -on -one. You know, we would have to walk into areas to set up these clinics. It was the same when I was working with, with MSF in Nepal during the Civil War there. You know, we had to walk everywhere. And, you know, if I'd shown up in, in the Land Cruiser and, you know, jumped out in my bright white T-shirt and sunglasses on, people would have looked at me and gone no, no, I don't know if I want to deal with that guy. Mm. And it's the same situation, uh, you know, when I've been walking in the Himalayas uh, because so much, uh, so much of the interaction that happens in the Himalayas these days is still on foot, you know, and if you show up, you know, I, I, I lead treks in the Himalayas now with, uh, and, and, you know, when you show up with a group of people in the Himalayas on foot, you know, you're, you're taken in, you know, you're, you're shown, you're shown respect and, mm. and, uh, and, but if you show up on the bus, completely different story. And on the other end of that, if you show up as an individual, as I did on that very long walk through the Himalayas, I remember I would show up in a village on foot and I would sit down on, on the stone steps of somebody's house and within five minutes, you know, people would have offered me a cup of tea, they would have offered me a place to sleep, uh, and they would have offered me to, to come into their houses and share a meal with them. The, the, the hospitality of the people in the Himalayas was just overwhelming. But a lot of that was because I came to them. I came to them not from a position of power, but from a position of respect and openness. There's this long tradition of pilgrimages and classic trails around the world. One thinks of the Overland Trail in Tasmania or the Appalachian Trail in the United States or, of course, the Kokoda Trail. Uh, what is it about humans that makes walking so essential to who we are? And how did that emerge? Yeah, well, there we've, we've got to the, the crux of the new book there, Andrew. Um, you know, I describe humans as, as bipedal problem solvers. Uh, and there is definitely a deep connection between, between walking and, and creativity. Uh, and when I say creativity, I don't mean creativity in the Picasso sense or the Tim Winton sense. I'm talking about the everyday problem solving that we have to do here and now, you know, the traffic, the kids, the work colleagues, uh, the overload of information that we're supposed to assimilate every day. Those, those can be given perspective and answers can be 
truer answers can be derived for those everyday problems when we go for a walk. Um, and why is that? Well, you know, it starts four million years ago when our earliest ancestors stood up on their on their hind legs to grab a piece of fruit and then shuffled another three steps on to grab another one. And I can imagine that when she did that, her colleagues were looking at her going, she is mad. Look at her, she's up on her hind legs. What is she doing? Well, you know, I'm sure that the rest of the colleagues realized within years that this is actually not a bad idea. Mm. You know, this is a way of using our bodies in a new and dynamic ways that actually makes resources easier for us to attain. So, you know, human beings are people that respect a good idea and incorporate a good idea. And that goes way back four million years. So the new idea was going up on your hind legs. Now that changed our perception of the world and that eventually changed our cognition. We had the ability to see farther and when you have the ability to see farther, maybe you think farther also. The other thing about that stepping up onto our hind legs was that it freed up our forepaws and those forepaws over millions of years became dexterous hands that mm. became the tools or the mediums through which we could create tools. We could, we could alter our immediate environment for our own benefit. Um, we created more and more task-specific stone tools over many millions of years. And that, that cognition, that, that idea of creation wouldn't have started to happen if we hadn't created these hands and that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have take, take on the ability to walk. Now, that so that task-specific stone tool making also really takes another leap, probably about 2.5, 3 million years ago, when we started to, when we started to get an appetite for protein and to, uh, and, and, and to, to acquire that protein, then we wanted, we wanted to hunt. And I can imagine that males and females were involved in those hunting parties. And over again, millions of years, we created these long-range hunting techniques where we would accentuate our only real physiological advantage over other animals, which is heat dissipation. Human beings, homo sapiens, can outwalk just about any other animal over many days. And you can imagine... You can imagine that that group, that small group of people, you know, crossing the savanna for days on end, tens, maybe hundreds of kilometers tracking an animal. And it's important to remember that the best hunters are actually the most creative people because to be a great hunter, you have to imagine exactly what your prey is doing, what the hunted animal is doing. To do that, you have to imagine what it is to be that animal. To do that, you have to come out of yourself. You have to leave yourself and imagine what it is to be something else. It is, it is incredible empathy. You also have to imagine where your, your co-hunters are going to be at any one point in time. So to be a great hunter, you have to leave yourself. Now, that's an incredible thought because... Um, you know, in the 1990s, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was an, uh, 
a Hungarian-American psychologist, came across, or he, he researched this area that we now know as flow, uh, which is a heightened state of consciousness that thousands of people that he did, he did serious interviews with over many years described as the, the high point of their lives, the point in their lives when they were, they, when they were working at their best. And what, what, what's described in that is a state where you lose your sense of self and your sense of time. And in that point, and we've all experienced that. You know, we experience that at work. We experience that while we're running. We experience that, we experience that most simply when we're walking. You know, walking is the simplest way to achieve a flow state. And this all relates back to those early long-range hunting techniques. We developed it there. And I believe, and of course this would be almost impossible to prove now, but I believe that over the many millions of years that we used long-range hunting techniques, and, and we still do, uh, then the, the, neuro, the neurology within our brains, the neurochemistry, the neuroelectricity, and the neurophysiology of our brains change to accentuate that model, that model of flow. Mm. And that's why when we go for a walk today, after you've been, well, when we go for a walk today, the first thing that happens when you go for a walk is that the, the flow of neurotransmitters in our brains change. And uh, we get an increase in flow of dopamine and serotonin and anandamide. The neuroelectricity levels in our brain drop to, uh, to, to the area actually similar to when we're in a meditative state. And that happens right away. This starts to create a more open and spacious mindset. It lets the, the ideas start to flow. And you get, that, you get that sense in Buddhism, what they call monkey mind, where all of these ideas start flowing in and, and start, start playing in your brain. But if you keep walking for 20, 30, 40 minutes, what happens is that in, in a neurophysiological sense is that our prefrontal cortex starts to slow down. And when it starts to slow down, the prefrontal cortex is the area of the brain that's involved in higher cognitive functions that makes us do things. If we think about it, what we do every day is a definition of who we are as people. That's our personalities. Andrew, the way that you put your, your key in your, in, your, in your ignition of your car, the way you hang out the clothes, the way you make your coffee, the way that you lay your, the way that you lay your utensils on the table at dinner time, all of those simple, tiny, repeated actions over and over again, millions of times a day, all of those are actually what creates the sense of Andrew as a person or Jono as a person. Now, when you start to slow down the prefrontal cortex, you start to lose that, that tie to the self, then what happens is you're able to view problems that have been evolving in work or at home from a completely new angle in a completely new way. And when you can do that, then you get to that, that stage that Dave Eagleman, the neuroscientist, talks about of bending, breaking, and blending ideas. Mm. That is the most creative state that we can evolve in. And so walking, the simplest way to create flow, is also, is also a definition of who we are as human beings. 
So there's been a pretty strong movement uh, towards getting 10,000 steps a day. And uh, I love the uh, historian who pointed out that this has a, its origins in uh, the early Japanese pedometers uh, produced in the 1960s by a company that called the Manpoke, uh, meaning literally 10,000 step metre. And now science has looked at it and it turns out there's nothing magical about 10,000 steps and actually the health benefits probably max out at about 7,500. Uh, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, that uh, uh, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world who are targeting 10,000 steps a day with their little electronic devices? Yeah, I, I love that image of people with their little pedometers on. You know, to me, it doesn't really matter. You know, if people are getting out and walking, that's what's important. You know, if they need that motivation of hearing the pedometer go beep, that's fine by me. Uh, to me, what's important is that people realize that when you go for a walk, whether it's a walk to the photocopier or uh, a walk around the lake or a bush walk of 25K on the weekend, all of those are great because as soon as you start moving, you come back into contact with what it is to be a human, to be the most creative, the most communicative, and probably the most dominant species on earth. When you, when you, when you start walking, you come back into that, that link to the human story. Because the human story, especially the story of Homo sapiens, is, is, linked to, is linked to the last great migration that species Homo made out of East Africa. You know, about uh, 90 to 100,000 years ago, there was a, a huge change in, in Homo sapien cognition. Uh, the first thing was that um, Homo sapiens started to uh, attain symbolic thought. That was the idea that we could look at objects, view objects as more than what they were immediately apparent to us. Uh, well, that's the start of art. You know, and a, a classic example of this is Uluru. You know, we look at Uluru. Uluru is, a, is, is an incredible geological feature. It's a big rock. Well, actually, you know, when you talk to indigenous people, it is much, much more than a big rock. It's the embodiment of an entire creation mythology. And that type of thinking, that magical thinking, really only starts to happen about 100,000 years ago. At the same time, Homo sapiens attained the uh, uh, ability to use spoken language, oral language. What that does, what spoken language did was incredibly expand the way, uh, the medium through which we could communicate, all of a sudden we were able to convey extremely complex thoughts and concepts between each other. Concepts that we couldn't have done using body language that we'd used up until that point. So you take those two incredible, incredible advances in cognition and then you lay on top of that the fact that around 90,000 years ago there was a major climate change event in East Africa and Homo sapiens were forced to leave the continent. That 
That led to an 80,000-year walking migration around the globe where Homo sapiens populated every habitable part of this planet, including Australia and including North America and South America that had no Homo erectus habitation before that time. So the story of humanity, the story of human beings is a walking journey, an 80,000-year walking odyssey where it was a series of challenges and answers, overcoming and understanding. And when, when we get up and take those steps, it brings us back into contact with that 80,000-year walking odyssey. So when you get out and walk, you remember what it is to be human. You build a connection as you walk with the place that you're in. But I, I'm struck listening to the story of your life for the extent to which you've moved around to different places. And I suppose this is a question uh, shaped up for me by the fact that I spent last week in the Kimberley uh, speaking to a whole lot of Indigenous people in, in uh, communities where uh, the place in which they live is unique for them. It's the place where their ancestors were. It's the place where their stories are. It, it, is, it is their place. Uh, you and, and I suppose me, given that I wasn't born in Canberra either, are, are what's disparagingly been called rootless, placeless cosmopolitans who uh, uh, uproot from one spot, one spot to another. Um, do you think people like us lose something from not living our whole lives in one place and building that connection and, and encouraging our children to then live in the same place and to, and to essentially get what, uh, some, some of what Indigenous peoples, uh, not just Aboriginal Australians, but Indigenous peoples around the world have from that deeply rooted sense of place? Well, different likes for different types. Uh, that is a really good question. You know, uh, of course, it's it's a difficult question coming posed from the perspective of Indigenous people in Australia because having been on this continent for sixty five thousand years, it's pretty obvious that they are the most resilient people in the world. Um, you know, my background is Irish, and the Irish have been forced to migrate for, uh, you know, 200 years now. And, uh, and yet we still, we still hold that connection to, to place. Uh, and then, you know, I look at the, the, the lighter connection that, for example, my friends that I grew up with on Vancouver Island, that they still have with that place, and the deep connections that they have to understanding the seasons and understanding the, the flora and the fauna of that area. Um, if honestly, if I had a choice, I would I would like my children to stay in one place for as long as possible and get that connection to to place and family deeply embedded there. Um, but the truth is, Andrew, as you know, that that's not always possible for us Westerners in the 21st century. Yes, urbanisation is in some sense a, a breaking of the connection to place. Um, and I'm, I'm struck by this uh, uh, photographer who's been spending a lot of time travelling across the United States photographing people in uh, disadvantaged communities. And, and he said, 
invariably the answer that you get when you ask people why don't you move to the city is because this is home. Uh, do you do you think it's harder for rootless placement placeless cosmopolitans to build that sense of, of home in a new place? Um, it's it's hard for me to say because uh, you know I've been a rootless placeless cosmopolitan almost all my life. <laughs> but I know that right now Canberra is home and my definition of home is uh, is the the place where I find joy and joy mm. for me is actually uh, being with my kids, being with my wife, uh, being together as a family. Um, to me, what's important, and uh, you know, I think there are millions and millions of Australians who would agree with me on this. You know, the, the, the home home is where family is. You know, Australia is a nation of immigrants. We find home. Where we, where we end up with our family. Mm. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Don't be too hard on yourself. Uh, and yeah, that would, that would probably be, uh, you know, sentence one. Sentence two would be, don't give up, work hard. And sentence three would be... Um, Think about that email or that letter before you send it. <laughs> yes, I feel as though every email system should have that uh, Google, <laughs> Google button that you can, Gmail button you can hit yeah, saying undo, undo send. <laughs> uh, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, well, I... You know, I was brought up as a Presbyterian, right? So I spent every Sunday in uh, wet, damp, woolly-smelling uh, Scottish Presbyterian churches in Belfast. So I had a deep belief in the power of the Christian God. There's no doubt about that. Uh, now I have a great faith in humanity. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, running and walking. Yeah. Running and walking and, um, you know, you know, the biggest strain on my mental health is probably parenting. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you can relate to that, Andrew. Absolutely. But, do you have any tips for getting kids out running and walking? Oh, it's a constant challenge that I Oh, my that God, the constant challenge, yes. I've just bought them a remote-controlled car in order to entice oh, them to come up to, to, come up to the bush, uh, which has worked for a while, but I, I sense their, their excitement in the remote-controlled car waning already. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, oh, that is one of my, my great challenges, is trying to get my now, my now teenage kids out out uh, out and about with me um yes and unfortunately there's more carrots than sticks these days sticks definitely don't work <laughs> do you have any guilty pleasures um I like ice cream <laughs> i i don't no i don't have a lot of guilty pleasures uh my wife probably complains that uh i go to salvos too much i i, I like a good op shop there you go are you, do you a collector of things, or are you just no. hoping, you're hoping for a great bargain there? I'm hoping for a great bargain. This comes from my dad. Right. My dad is a great bargain hunter. You know, I always remember as a 
as a kid, uh, we would go to the auction every Friday. And I mean, I, I, I love that, you know, I love going to the auction because there was that, the hope of, there's the hope of a win there, mm. you know, and my dad, you know, he would always, if he didn't buy something, uh, there was always a mystery box at the end of the night and my dad would buy that and it was full of old rusty tools, always, and he would bring that home and my mom would look at him and say, take that outside, put it in the bin right now. <laughs> The closest to Presbyterian was able to go to gambling. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and finally, John, what personal, what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, well, uh, the Dalai Lama is um, probably the, the living person that I have the most respect for in the world. Uh, and I do, I do read his teachings, and I was very fortunate a few years ago to go on retreat with him uh, for five days in the Blue Mountains, which was a really fantastic experience. Trish and I were both able to go. Um, so he's definitely shaped uh, the way that I, the way that I think. And of course, uh, well, my mom and dad, of course. I mean, I. Uh, they have created created a model around uh, you know around, around work and respect and the understanding of others that I think is very important, and of course Gareth, my brother, because uh, you know without the tragic events around his death, I wouldn't have had um, the the energy to reassess my life and what I thought was a good life. John Lemaine, uh, Canberran, thinker, runner, writer, skier. Thank you very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Oh, no, that was, a, that was a great pleasure. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love my interviews with Rob DeCastella, Sean Crichton, Kurt Fernley, Sue Reid and Ben Pronk. We really enjoy getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.